Hello and welcome to another episode of the Curious Cat Podcast. I am your host, Sebastian Bowen, joined as always by my co-host, Zoe Marie Kasselman. Hello. Hello, Zoe. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. What have you been up to? Um, as always, sat at home doing nothing, watching Netflix, as most of us are. Okay. Um, what have you been watching? A lot since we've last spoken, actually. have a lot um, of things that I've binged through. I've watched The Haunting of Bly Manor. I've watched Ratchet. Okay, yeah, I do want to check that out, actually. That looks pretty cool. Yeah, it wasn't bad, wasn't bad. Um, I've started The Alienist Season 2. Right. And I've also started The Unsolved Mystery Season 2. Haven't watched them all yet. Okay. Going back to The Alienist, is that any good? Because I haven't, I've seen it pop up a few times, but I, I don't know if it's for me. It's okay. I think it's one of those things that, I'm not massively involved in and need to know what's happening, but it's definitely one of the things you can have on in the the background. background. Right. Okay. Um, So what else? Unsolved Mysteries 2, season two. Yeah. Um, Watched three of them, maybe. Okay. I think I'm up to like episode five, I think. I think, yeah, I think the Japanese one was number four. So I think I'm just... Okay. I've, I've seen that one. Yeah. I think I'm up to episode five. Um, Yeah. Not too bad. I don't know if it's as strong as last season's yet. I feel like I'm still waiting for that that kicker episode. You know, I thought number two was good. The episode two was good about the um, the lady that was found dead in the hotel room with a gunshot gunshot wound to the head. Um, yeah, I thought that was really good and definitely an episode that I think could be solved by yes. just getting the word out, which yeah. would be really interesting because obviously someone is going to know something about this case. True. Whereas some of the others that I've seen in this series, mm. I don't think they're ever going to find out any information, which kind of takes something away from the Unsolved Mystery series to me. Yeah, a little bit. Um, But I also think there was something said in that episode specifically where um, I think he was a police officer, I can't remember now, but he basically said if it was something to do with spies then they would have already paid off the family and anyone that she knows in order to not say anything forever, which is why we'll never, we will never know the truth essentially, because they will think that by saying anything, they're losing protection. But someone's Uh, got to recognize her is what I'm thinking. Yeah. I think the thing that was odd though, one thing that stood out, I mean, obviously apart from the whole scenario itself, but when they said in her suitcase, she only had like, um clothes for her top half of her body but none for the bottom half of her body which i thought was really weird so she had literally one skirt but like loads of different tops that was odd um i couldn't quite work out why why that would be a thing but i don't know why but that stuck in my head and like a million bullets when you wouldn't need that yeah 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 it was a good one that one was a good one yeah so i'm hoping there's still i think a couple more episodes so i'm hoping there's still one big episode in there that kind of grabs me and it makes me feel like yeah okay that that was very very odd um what else uh anything else you've been watching yeah haunting of bly manor um i don't know if you watched the haunting of hill house no i haven't yet that came out last year didn't it uh, yeah no, i haven't checked that yeah. out yet are they both so is that like a sequel to that that season then yeah it is it's the same people same actors same directors producers however when you look at it on Netflix, they are two different seasons. It's not like season one and two. All right, so it's an anthology, like um, 
the American like American Horror Story. Yes, right. okay. but when you go onto American Horror Story on Netflix, it'll still say like season, season one, one. Yeah. season two. But this doesn't. I really enjoyed it. I've saw some bad reviews about it. Oh, I've also watched Enola Holmes. Okay. Oh, right. The um. Millie Bobby Brown, Sherlock Holmes thing. Sherlock yeah. Holmes, yeah, right, okay. Any it was, good? I, no, I didn't like it. Didn't I know like that's it. a very unpopular opinion, but... Because my son watched it, and he, he quite enjoyed it, but I don't... I mean, he's coming at it from never really watching Sherlock Holmes, okay. and I suppose taking it on a standalone. My son's very young, so he just watched it from what was presented to him, and he quite enjoyed the show. I think he said he felt like he learned a little bit of Sherlock Holmes. So I think it sparked his interest in Sherlock Holmes. But, yep. but um, yeah, so it's a good little gateway there. But I found that interesting. So I haven't checked it out myself, but he seemed to enjoy it quite a bit. So I was watching, what was it called? 60 Days In, which is the uh, the show where they take civilians and, and put them in jail for 60 days to I see. I watched the first series. It's like, it's yeah. brilliant. I wouldn't know the second season's even better. I, I, um. So there's a guy in it that has essentially gone rogue. So part of their job essentially is to to feed back to the officers if they find anything on towards within within the prison. And there's about sixty, you know, sixty cellmates in this room. And one of the one of the guys on the show, I was going to call him a contestant then, but I suppose they're not really contestants. But <laughs> one of the guys who's who's decided to sign up for this. He has taken his role so seriously um, that he's now crossed over to the other side. So he's like, he's like, he's he's gone deep, deep undercover. And they had to actually pull him at one point out of the show and have a word with him. But I don't want to, I don't want to give away and spoil too there much. There was a guy that that happened within the first series as well, and he just went like absolutely nuts and started like damaging all the cameras and stuff. They had this, to put him yeah, in solitary yeah. confinement. He That's just went right. crazy. Well, no, this guy's got bigger plans. He he generally <laughs> feels like he's ready to start an empire. So he thinks he's figured out all of the economics and all of the, the I suppose, prison rules enough for him to actually become a kingpin in jail. So it's almost like he has no intentions of going back to his normal life, the way he's, the way he's speaking at the moment. So it's it's quite funny. Worrying, but funny at the same time when you're yeah, watching it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not one for trash TV and I don't watch reality TV. It's just not for me. Right. But I think this is kind of on a cusp where it's actually, it can be interesting and educational to see people's views about the prison system for definite right. there are some crazy yeah. views but yeah. i just love it it's such easy yeah. watching and all the other prisoners are, are genuine they are genuine inmates they are people that yeah. have broken the law and been sent to sent to jail for numerous different lengths of time so it is interesting from that point of view and i wouldn't even say it's just it's for people that like to watch prison shows because i don't generally right. tap into those types of shows but this one has an element to it that kind of grabs you and pulls you in. And I think this season um, is just even better than last season. I've just found that character so funny. Um, but, yeah, so I've been watching a bit of that and uh, Unsolved Mysteries. And I don't really know, actually. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything else. I think those have been my main two. I hope people uh, enjoyed last week's episode, what we put out for the first time, which was Stay Curious. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, Go back and have a listen. It's very different from this show, and in the sense that we're going to try and do smaller, ten to fifteen minute episodes. Some of them might be story based, like last week's episode, and some of them might just be more factual and just kind of us informing you of something that we don't really feel like we want to flush out for an hour or so, but we might want to just kind of visit the subject for a little while. And um, then 
make sure that you are subscribed to us because any like mini episodes we do put out then you you will get yes exactly and also on that note as well just we have had a a nice number of people subscribe which is really good ghana came on board quite a lot which was good they have seemed to be picking up the show and we're quite happy with that. I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners out there. And thank you to all our listeners, wherever you are, really. It's it's nice just to be able to know that we're reaching audiences in different places. And when I look down the list and see the countries, it makes me smile knowing that you're um, listening to us over there. Because it's not places, some of them, that I would even have expected to pick up the podcast. So, yes, thank you very much for listening. Another thing I wanted to mention was just I just wanted to thank my brother, who did our new logo for us. Some of you might have noticed our logo change over the last two weeks. And that was down to him. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Seb's brother. Yes. He managed to come through that in a very, very short space of time. Uh, It's one of the rare times where I put in a request for a piece of graphic work and he actually turned it around. Anyone who has a family member who works in either IT or graphics knows that these things don't usually happen instantly and it usually takes a lot of begging and pleading before they kind of go, oh, okay, I'll do it. And mainly because people assume that it takes a little amount of time to do such things when actually it does usually take a long time to produce something like that. So we're very, very grateful. We've had nice feedback in terms of people saying that they like the new logo which is good Um, yeah and we we do we do love him and we are actually looking for a name for him at the moment so we've been trying to think of some names but if you do have any suggestions definitely let us know because yeah we want to name our little cat (laughs) it'd be nice to name the cat so yeah as zoe said please let us know jump on the social media and give us some suggestions um if we were to ask our listeners to do something for us in return just for our lovely hard work that we do every two weeks it would be just to tell someone about the podcast if you could tell two people about the podcast and just share us that would be fantastic for us um the more people that listen to the show makes us happy essentially which gives us an incentive to keep producing great episodes for all of you so if you could do anything for us in the next two weeks is just tell more people about the curious cat podcast so now we have most of the housekeeping out of the way i think it's time to get on to this week's episode so zoe would you like to tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about today in december of 1900 three men were tasked with the job of looking after a newly built lighthouse on a remote island off the west coast of scotland after successfully fulfilling this duty for some time one day a vessel bringing relief supplies to the island noticed that the flashing bright light they were so used to seeing when visiting had stopped. When they eventually boarded the island to investigate, what they found puzzled them and created much intrigue and discussion still to this day. The three lighthouse keepers were nowhere to be seen, and all that remained was silence and their apparent absence. Over the next 120 years, people have theorised and speculated over the mystery and have yet to come up with a confirmed answer. This incident would later be known as the Flannan Isles Lighthouse Incident. Yes, that's correct. And it's very fitting that we're doing this episode during quarantine, because in some ways, these three men are in some sort of form of isolation. So I'm hoping a lot of people can just relate to the feeling of being in a lighthouse, because we've all 
stay in our homes for the last how many months? And we found that difficult on many different levels. But if you could imagine being inside a lighthouse that is remote from land and you're on your own or maybe sharing it with two other people who you probably don't see much because they're usually sleeping while you're awake, that can add to that level of anxiety and frustration and isolation on yeah, another it's easier level. for people to understand the psyche nowadays yes exactly i think most people can now start to relate to that let's get into it so so where is it so it's on a tiny island literally pinprick of an island called eileen moor which is one of the flannan isles just off the coast of mainland scotland when we say just off the coast it's about 15 miles away from lewis okay and this took place 120 years ago, December 15, 1900s. So the three people involved were James Ducat, who was the, the principal, Thomas Marshall, who was the second assistant, and Donald MacArthur, who was the occasional lighthouse keeper, the OLK. And that meant he was covering for someone that was actually off sick at the time. So he wasn't the actual, the real first assistant but he got brought in just because someone was on leave. Yeah. We'll go into a little bit of the kind of hierarchy of the men a bit later. So just to start out so that you have a, a background to where these men were, we'll look at some of the lighthouse history. So this was a 23-metre, 75-foot lighthouse, which was designed by David Allen Stevenson, who his family designed all the lighthouses basically in the northern region and who Seb and I just found out is the same family as Robert Louis Stevenson who you may know as the novelist who wrote Treasure Island, Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde, things like that which I thought was quite interesting. So they designed the lighthouses for the Northern Lighthouse Board which um, or NLB which we'll get into a little bit later as well. The construction happened between 1895 and 1899 and was undertaken by George Lawson at a cost of £1,899, inclusive of the building of the landing places, stairs and railway tracks. I mean, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good cost for a lighthouse, I would say. Um, I know it was 1900s, but could you imagine today trying to build something for under two grand? You'd be very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> So all of the materials used had to be hauled up a 45 metre or 148 feet cliff directly from supply boats. So it was no trivial task in the ever-churning Atlantic. The lighthouse first went into operation on the 7th of December 1899, a year before the incident happened. Built in Island Moor, the largest of seven islands outer Hebrides of the west coast of mainland Scotland, in good weather conditions the light could be seen for about 23 to 25 miles. Because a lot of the trade was still being done by sea, lighthouses were still vital for marking out areas with dangerous coastlines and potential hazards. Today, most lighthouses are controlled remotely and electronically, but back then the lighthouses were manned by people or teams of people. The last manned lighthouse in England, just in case you wanted to know, was the North Foreland Lighthouse in Kent in November 1998. Yeah, and something I didn't know about lighthouses... And I think it's very geeky, but I found very interesting. Go on. Each lighthouse has a different signature so that you knew where you were based on the flash of the lighthouse. 
So, so you mean ex- like like a Morse code flash kind of thing? Almost, yeah. So, right, okay. for example, the lighthouse on the Flannan Isles, the light of the Flannan Isles lighthouse used to flash twice every 30 seconds. So when you saw that, yeah. you'd know, that's the Flannan Isles lighthouse, I know where I am. Which feels like a long time. If you're in like the dark, is twice every 30 seconds feels like a long time. If you miss that, you're going to be like, wait, okay, now we've got to wait another 30 seconds for that flash twice. Um, but yeah, that's I didn't know that either. That's quite an interesting little fact. I just thought they all just rotated around and so just did flashed. I, yeah. I, that's what you always see like in cartoons or films or whatever. But they were obviously then more like a an actual signal device, like a, a Morse code signaling a little bit of the history around the lighthouse so that you know what we're talking about. The NLB, Northern Lighthouse Board, was formed by an Act of Parliament in 1786. The NLB were in charge of all the lighthouses in the region across the north of the UK and the Isles of Man. So they were in charge of all the regulations around the construction, running, maintenance of the lighthouse, buoys, foghorns and a lot of the maritime safety. They're still around today. As of 31st of March 2019, among other things they're in charge of, they're in charge of 206 lighthouses to this day. That's, that's still pretty impressive. And it still shows you how many lighthouses are still around because you don't, you don't, it's not something I think about. But then again, I'm not on the water every day. So I suppose if I was on the water and I was relying on them, they're, they're probably very essential to um, the maritime world. No, and you do think like they have GPS and everything now, so I would hope you'd be able to, you know, like flick up Google Maps and have a quick look where you are. But yeah, <laughs> but you also being out on the open water, you probably wouldn't just want to <laughs> rely on GPS. I mean, lighthouses have obviously been around for a long time and have stood the test of time to a certain degree. So um, I think there's probably still some hardcore people out there that would still like to know where all their lighthouses are, and it still gives them some some form of bearings when they're out there. For this particular lighthouse, it was off a torrential part of the Northern Sea. There were no residents apart from the men manning the lighthouse. Weather was infamously bad, which is what's required the lighthouse to be there in the first place. There are only two structures on the island moor. An old stone chapel built by Irish Bishop St. Flanner in the 6th century and a lighthouse built in 1899. Yeah, and I just want to point out when they say a chapel, I have a picture at the bottom of the of this for you, Seb, and we'll put it on our social media. I mean, a pile of bricks with a door. <laughs> yeah, so not really a chapel. No. Um, but also, could you imagine just being anywhere where there's like one building? Like that would feel so weird that you're a one of three people there, but b you can't even go anywhere. So if you get like annoyed with these two people, you can't like go out and then no, go to another where. building. Like yeah. you're stuck in this building and a lighthouse is not even the type of building. Um, <laughs> the structure of it is not like a normal structure of a normal building anyway. So it's already a bizarre situation to be in. No, and this one was nicknamed the dog kennel because it was so small. And because of the weather conditions, obviously in Northern Scotland, you can't even like go out and go for a walk. So no. you really are just stuck in there. You're just stuck there with you and your chums. Yeah, so they're usually manned with up to six people who take shifts. They would perform maintenance and ensure the light actually kept working at all times. It's essentially a 24-hour job where you where your whole focus is that lighthouse. So there is nothing else to do on the island apart from look after this lighthouse inside and out. It's not just the lighthouse, it's the maintenance, it's the cleaning, it's the washing. The rules were really strict about maintaining this building. Yeah. 
it's so the kind you, of life where you woke up and you knew what you were doing that day. Exactly. <laughs> it was lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> so they said effectively they had two teams of free keepers. So six men in total, one principal lighthouse keeper and two assistants. Um, and they would stay in the lighthouse at all times. And they worked on a 28-day shift process. So it would be 28 days, three of you would stay there. And then every 28 days, another three guys would come and relieve you, and they would stay there for another 28 days. And it would go on and on and on. So between the six of you, you would maintain and keep this lighthouse working. The light was lit at dusk and distinguished at dawn. The three on the island would rotate four hours on and four hours off throughout the night, keeping the light running. So effectively, one would keep watch from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. Then the other one would wake up and then he would cover from 10 to 2 in the morning. And then lastly, the, the last guy would cover from 2 in the morning to 6 in the morning. So to keep the lighthouse working, there is a pulley system that has to be rewound like a clock every 30 or so minutes. On top of the cooking and the cleaning and the maintenance of the lighthouse, there was also paperwork that needed to be done. They'd have like daily logs of activities and obviously any other issues that they found with the lighthouse itself. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing to note is that they were in charge on the outside of the lighthouse to maintain the dock where the sh- the relief boats would come in. So there were two. There was one on the east of the island, one on the west of the island. Depending on the weather or the time of year, they would look after one because that's where they would be coming in so their job was to make sure all the supply crates were there clean the steps because they come up right from the sea so they'd be covered in moss yeah yeah Yeah. so most of their job was inside of this lighthouse with a very small part of it just maintaining these two dots and they'd only maintain one at a time sort of thing right okay I mean, it sounds like hard work. Your days were going to be tough because you had to, the weather to deal with itself, the environment on top of that. And I suppose just the intensity, because when you're in a situation where you're just waiting for something to happen, it kind of grows your anxiety even more. And mm-hmm. I, I suppose when you're, you know, you're in that situation where you know something could go wrong and you have to be ready for action. So there were three men on the island at the time of the incident. They were Thomas Marshall, James Ducat, and Donald MacArthur. So it was a completely military style operation. So there was a rank. So James Ducat was the principal. So the principal lighthouse keeper. And he was in charge. What he said goes. You had to listen to all of his commands. Then you had Thomas Marshall. who was the second assistant. And then Donald MacArthur. Who was the occasional keeper. Meaning he was a substitute. For when the actual keeper couldn't be on the island. So in this case, he was on the island in place of William Ross, who was the first assistant who had been on the extended sick leave. I mean, he chose the correct week to go on sick leave, though. I 100%. I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so the rules on the island were strict, and there was also a strict work regiment. There were two landing ports, one on the west and one on the east side of the islands. Those are the docks that we just mentioned earlier. And due to the time of the year, and the weather, the men would have been using and maintaining the east dock as the wind was coming from the west. Yes. So one man must always be in the lighthouse at any one time. That's like rule number one. So when work is being carried out outside, which shouldn't be too often, but does happen, or when men met the supply and relief boats, one man absolutely would always have to remain in the lighthouse. And I think that's an important fact about this whole story, really, is because... 
you could understand maybe two going missing. But for all three, that's the part where I think the the mystery is involved because what would it have taken to get all three of them to leave the lighthouse? Yeah. Is, is what made me think when I first heard of this story. So the NLB, the Northern Lighthouse Board, who we mentioned earlier, they had a gamekeeper called Roderick McKenzie to keep an eye out on the lighthouse. And due to the fact there were no communication from the lighthouse itself, like telegrams and certainly no emails or phones in those days, um, this guy's job was to keep an eye out in the event that any signals were being sent from the island. But when they said like signals, I, I didn't even know what they meant by that. So I did do some research on this. Um, yeah. Apparently, they would use a flag system. So right. they would have to use a flag if they spotted one of the relief boats coming to let the relief boat know that they were on their way. And I'm assuming, you know, if there was a danger, if there was an issue, they'd stick out a red flag. This guy would see it through his for his telescope and would report it back to the NLB. Right. Because when he picked up a signal, it was his job to send a telegram to the NLB to inform them. Then the NLB would investigate. But the part I found strange in all this, and I saw this in numerous sources though, his job was not to report it if the light stopped flashing. It was only to report on the actual signals themselves. I know. I think I know the answer to this too. Okay. Um, it, I think, was because the island was so notorious for having bad weather and having really heavy mist it wasn't unusual for you not to be able to see the island and not to be able to see the light from land. Right. So if he reported every time he couldn't see the light, it might just be that there was fog. Right. Um, so he was instructed to wait for a period of days or for any other unusual circumstances to report back. Okay. I think. Um, because the, where he was sitting as well, just in case it's not clear, he was about 20 to 24 miles away from the lighthouse where he was actually trying to watch and you could really only see the light on a very nice weather conditions kind of day um yeah, and this is only... scotland so that never happens <laughs> yeah so yeah if you know scotland that's that's very rare so the last time that he saw this light fully function was on the 7th of december which is eight days before we conclude the men disappeared he did see the light briefly on the 12th but again, that was only brief due to visibility. So he was logging this, but he hadn't actually reported anything up to this point okay. to the NBL and LB. Okay, so let's move on to the actual event itself, the incident. On the 15th of December 1900, the ship Arctur noted that they could not find the lights of the lighthouse. When they rearranged their equipment to ensure they were in the right place, the only conclusion they could reach was that the light was off. They noted it in their logbook to report to the NLB. However, the report was not passed to the NLB because the ship suffered its own ill fate, nearly sinking a few days later, but eventually making it to Leaf. Yes, that's not a very good omen, is it, for the whole of the story? No, not really. That's like straight away bad times. And just to know, actually, Leith is in Edinburgh, so they would have gone past the northern part of Scotland, right down to the south. Right, okay. A relief vessel, Hesperus, was due to arrive at the island on the 20th of December. However, due to poor weather conditions, it did not reach the island until the 26th of December at noon. Okay, so between the 20th and the 26th, the observer who we mentioned earlier had noted that he'd not seen the light for 11 days and he was getting ready to officially report that. So when the relief boat reached the island, the crew and the relief keeper found that the flagstaff had no flag 
And as we said earlier, that's the way that the crew would communicate to the relief boat that they had seen the boat and they were on their way down. The provision boxes had been left on the landing stage and there was no one there to greet them. The ship blew their whistle and also fired a flare, but the men did not appear. So right at that moment, you're thinking something's not right here. Yes, definitely. I mean, the fact that the flag's not even there, that already lets you know someone's not doing their job. At the very least, someone's not doing their job. Yeah, Um, which is unusual because we've already said like how militant this job was. Exactly. And if you know anything about the military, they love a flag. (laughs) So... (laughs) A yeah, I think was... actually it's important to note that these people, I think that, um, most of these men did have some sort of like maritime military experience. That's kind of the calibre of men they picked for this. Okay. A boat was launched and relief keeper Joseph Moore was put ashore alone to explore. He found that the gate and the front door were both closed. The inside door was closed and the kitchen door was open. The beds were unmade and the clocks had stopped, meaning that they had not been wound for at least a week. Curiously, two of the men's coats were missing, and one remained. He quickly realised there was no sign of the lighthouse keepers, inside the lighthouse or on the island. Yeah, so two of the men aboard the relief boat assisted more in inspecting the island. They found that on the western side there was significant damage to the railings and the supply crates. And I don't know if you saw, but the railings, like, that was kind of weird, because I thought, I'm not saying water cannot create some serious devastation, But these railings were really twisted up and and mangled. These railings and supply crates were 108 feet above sea level, so quite far up. The iron railway, uh, I don't think we mentioned earlier, there's one railway that splits off into two, one to the west and one to the east port, so that they can easily get the supplies to the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. Um, So this railway path was wrenched out of its concrete. So that also makes me think, I'm not sure how water would be able to wrench upper railway yeah but the thing is this is the thing it's hard to believe it but when you do see documentaries based on even like we said earlier the unsolved mysteries there's an episode based in japan that discusses the tsunami that took place a few years back and you do see the devastation that that can cause for for people who don't live in the uk we can have extreme weather in kind of quotation marks but we don't have tsunamis we don't have hurricanes we don't have extreme weather conditions that you might see other places in the world so yeah it's hard to imagine but it definitely does take place no so on top of this on top of the cliff at more than 200 feet above sea level the turf had been ripped away as far from as 33 feet from the cliff edge which is that's quite impressive yeah So Moore went back to the ship and sent an emergency telegram to the NLB dated the 26th of December. Uh, Seb, do you want to read out what his telegram said? Yeah, so it says, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Duquette, Marshall and the occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land Moore who went up to the station, but found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, MacDonald, Boymaster and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. We will not return to Oban until I hear from you. 
I've repeated this wire to Murhead, in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes, if you wish to wire me. Okay, so this was his kind of initial speculation of what he thought had happened on the island with very little information, I guess. Yeah, and this is him raising the alarm really pretty much for the first time to say something has definitely gone wrong here. Yeah. So when Moore was doing his investigation of the island, he found the keeper's log, which had to be um, militantly kept up to date. Um, The keeper's log, the entries that he found were for the 13th of December. But the particulars for the 14th of December, including the time of extinguishing the light on the 15th of December, along with the barometer and thermometer readings and state of the wind taking at 9am on the 15th of December, were noted on the slate for transferring to the log later on. Yes, everything was in order and a lamp was ready to be lit and it was evident that the work of the forenoon of the 15th had been completed. This indicated the men had disappeared on the afternoon of Saturday the 15th of December. Yes. So it's important to note that since 1912, the state of the island has been misquoted. Originally, people thought that the scene left behind wasn't in the perfect order that Moore had quoted. For years, people thought that the scene Moore had discovered was a warm dinner on the table, a toppled chair indicating that the men had literally just been there and left in a hurry. This eventually turned out to be completely fabricated as part of the English poet Wilfred Wilson Gibson's poem in 1912, The Flannan Isles. Yeah, so essentially people read this poem and took it as fact. Yes. They just, they, you know, they, they heard the poem and thought, oh, okay, that's exactly what happened word for word. But obviously he's a poet and... <laughs> <laughs> he, he elaborated and took some. He's some looking liberties. for that dramatic effect. Yeah, he's looking for that. You know, oh, they were just there, which makes it all creepy. And exactly, exactly. Yes. So, as part of this initial report, you may have also heard that Moore reported some of the strange logbook entries, including that on the twelfth of December, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant, wrote of severe winds, the like of which I have never seen before in twenty years. He also noted that James Ducat, the principal keeper, had been very quiet and that the third assistant, William MacArthur, had been crying. Log entries on the 13th of December stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. The log entries we've just described were published in the American magazine in 1920 and have since been dismissed by some as fabrication and not authentic. Unfortunately, we don't have the copies of the original logbook as the NLB didn't keep these records. According to their website, the documents regarding the incident are held by the National Archives of Scotland, but do not include the logbook. The final mysterious entry, written on 15th of December, simply says, Storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. And that's a little bit dramatic, and slightly out of character for the type of guys that were picked for these these positions, because they were all very tough men who were used to dealing with this type of environment as well. But that's not to say that mental health issues might not have played a part, the isolation like we mentioned earlier. But I do feel like these entries were in some way editorialised for dramatic effect. Yes, I agree. Uh, The Superintendent Commissioner of Northern Lights, Robert Merhard, arrived on the 29th of December with replacement lightkeeper. He said, I am of the opinion that most likely explanation of this disappearance of the men is that they had all gone down on the afternoon of Saturday the 15th of December to the proximity of the West Landing to secure the box with the mooring ropes 
and other items, and an unexpectedly large roller had come up on the island, and a large body of water going up higher than where they were and coming down upon them had swept them away. Crane that was erected there in the summer of that year was still intact. However, mooring ropes, landing ropes and crane handles that were usually kept in a crate 110 feet above sea level had been washed away and could be seen in between the rocks, uncoiled in the water. Railings leading up to the irons made of iron were twisted and broken. A life buoy that was there for emergencies was missing. He concluded that he believes two of the keepers, James Ducat and Thomas Marshall, went to secure the box with the ropes, but whilst there, a huge wave came and swept them away. Donald MacArthur saw what happened or heard something alarming and hurried outside to try to assist them. So I think it's now important to try and get into some of the um, explanations as to what could happen to the men. Since the weather was the answer that everyone initially jumped to, I thought that this would be a really good place to start so we can see how likely this was and start to bring into context why this has remained a famous mystery and not just put down to the weather. Keith Mikowski, who wrote The Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers, so he literally wrote the book in this, <laughs> said in an interview that when he went to the island to carry out some research, it was a clear blue day. All of a sudden, a huge wall of fog was seen approaching the island, and quicker than they could act, they were suddenly enveloped in a thick fog, causing poor visibility. He said that no sooner than the fog arrived, it left. And when it was gone, it left behind the once brilliant sunshine. And this whole event happened in about 20 minutes. He also noted that he was lucky enough to speak to one of the old lighthouse keepers. This lighthouse keeper was six foot tall, weighed 16 stone, and in this instance was carrying a fridge. A gush of wind suddenly hit him, picked up both himself and the fridge, and lifted him 10 to 15 feet away from where he started. Now that's impressive. I mean, that's, that sounds like a very, very large gust of wind to be able to lift you up and a fridge up. Again, though, weather is strong. We forget that. Nature is, yeah. you know, is one of the strongest forces. So you can't underestimate that it's, it's possible. It's very plausible. Very, very plausible. Yeah, exactly. And the reason that the weather, I think, was so bad here was that there is literally nothing from the west of this island until you reach Canada, which, for those of you who know, UK, nowhere near Canada, <laughs> mm. which means the weather has nothing to break on until it actually gets to the island, causing extreme weather conditions. So there's no denying that the weather was crazy here. However, these men were highly trained and highly skilled to withstand these weather conditions. It would have been unusual that they were even outside, since the policy was to stay in the lighthouse in bad weather conditions. If for some reason they did have to go out, they were trained to do things such as lie down in a gust. It also doesn't explain why all three men were out of the lighthouse at one time. So to see if weather was the culprit, we need to examine the weather conditions at the time of their disappearance. Meteorologist reports do state that it was the wettest month on record at the time, proving that they were facing constant bad weather it also proves there was a storm, a storm that reached almost hurricane standards, which, as I've said earlier, the UK rarely sees. This storm could have potentially caused waves up to 70 feet high. And even though the cliff is 110 feet high, the force of the wave against the cliff edge could have easily pushed the water up over the cliff and over the edge, causing the damage witnessed by Joseph Moore and Mirhead on the west side of the island. One of the men had previously received a fine for the damage of equipment, 
and if they saw this storm coming in, the men may well have decided to risk the storm to secure their equipment to avoid a fine by the NLB. This could explain why they were on the western side of the island, when they wouldn't have currently been maintaining that port, and if one or both of the men were out on the cliff edge while this wave hit, they could have been carried away. The remaining men, or man, could have been swept away or could have fallen off the cliff in a rescue attempt. So that's it then. Mystery solved. This is it. This is the end of the episode. Um, We can just shut the case now. Yeah, well, not quite. So there are two reasons that this theory doesn't fit. Firstly, there is an assumption that if the men were in trouble, it would have been easy to call the third man, who we assume is MacArthur due to his coat being left inside. This isn't the case. McClowski stated that it would have taken the men 10 minutes to get down to the side of the cliff and at least 20 to 30 minutes at least to get back up. So if one man called for help, he would have to have gone and get MacArthur, which would have taken at very least half an hour to get there and back. By that time, the first man would surely have been swept away. So what happened to the other two? This doesn't explain why MacArthur didn't have time to grab his coat but did have time to close the doors and the gate. The chances of one high wave are low, but two is almost minuscule. And to me, if you're running outside into a storm and you remember to shut the doors, I'm pretty sure you're going to remember to grab your coat. I just, I don't know. There's something about that. that, That's the part that kind of sticks with me. You wouldn't have just ran out there in just, I don't know, I'm not not assuming you had a T-shirt I do have an alternative theory here. Okay, I'm willing to hear it. One of my theories being, if you imagine you and me at work and we're sat there, it's really cold outside and you have to remember that MacArthur was an occasional lighthouse keeper. So he didn't have the same gear and equipment that the other two people had. It wasn't as good a coat. So if you said to me, you need to go out into the snow, go to Sainsbury's and buy me a sandwich Mm -hmm. and you had a really warm scarf and I had a rubbish one, I would take your scarf to go to Sainsbury's and buy you a sandwich, right? Okay. So it could have been that MacArthur may have borrowed someone else's coat to go out and do the job that he had to do outside. So when then there was an emergency or there was a reason why I didn't come back and you went to look for me, you wouldn't then necessarily take my scarf. So I guess this is a really long-winded way of me saying that this does prove that it may not have been MacArthur in the lighthouse, which everyone assumes. Because he could have borrowed someone else's coat who then wouldn't have necessarily taken MacArthur's coat out if they went outside. Oh, I see your point. Okay. That's a, it's, yeah, it's a plausible theory. I will <laughs> give you that. It's, at first, I was wondering where you're going with this. But after hearing your conclusion of that, that does actually sound quite plausible. It, it does. But then I think a coat is still better than no coat. So yeah. I don't know. Unless yeah. it doesn't fit. That's the yeah. other thing. Unless that person knew that that coat didn't fit them, and there was no. Yeah, well, one of these it. guys was one of these guys was huge, so we already know that Thomas Marshall. We've been told that he's a really big guy. So if someone borrows his coat, for example, he's probably not going to fit in MacArthur's. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's a good theory. I quite like it. I quite <laughs> like it. Um, so the second reason that this theory doesn't make sense is that we know this storm happened. It's recorded, and we know that in all likelihood. This is what caused the damage to the island. However, this storm was recorded and happened on the 17th of December, two whole days after the men were assumed to have disappeared, due to the logbooks and the fact that the archon passed in the evening of the 15th. So the weather on the 15th, 
it was actually relatively calm for that month. So it was the calm before the storm, not a storm to end all storms, perfectly manageable for these trained men. Wind speeds would have been about 60 miles an hour, possibly creating the highest wave of about 30 feet. Yeah, so not really the um, conditions that we're led to believe. No, and it leads me to conclude that the damage to the island and actually what happened to these three men happened on different days. Okay, so you don't actually think they were all taken on the same time? No, I believe the damage to the island happened on the 17th, and whatever happened to those three men happened on the 15th. That's interesting. So you do think that the damage to the island was caused by weather, though? Yes. I believe the damage to the island was caused by the 17th of December storm. Right. So then in some ways, your version makes things even more complicated, because then you're, you're saying, well, then what did actually cause them, all three guys, to disappear? Well, I have a a conclusion to this too, is that if you're having that bad weather that's coming up 33, onto, 33 feet onto the shore, maybe it did sweep away the evidence of whatever happened on the 15th. Okay. You're, you're digging even further into dark, that's dark totally areas. That's totally plausible. That is, but it's, it's, it's actually making, you're putting more layers on top of it to make <laughs> it even more complicated to figure out. And my whole thing is still based on the one man having to stay in the lighthouse situation yes. because there's no getting around that 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 one fact alone something would have to have drawn that third person out of the lighthouse in order to all three of them to go missing and that's the part that bothers me and the fact that there was still a coat inside the lighthouse at the time that's the that's the fact for me that i can't move past because it's like well his coat was still there but he wasn't they have a very strict rule of one of you at least staying in there at all times, all times. And I'm assuming if that's rule number one and you're coming from a very, you know, military run Mm -hmm. process, you can't break that rule unless unless something major happens. So if it's not the weather, what was it? Yeah. But we'll get into some other theories later as to what that could be. And there are some bizarre ones. So we actually have a relatively short window of time here that the men disappeared There were logs up until 15th lunchtime, which would have ended about 2 p.m. And the archer cell passed just before midnight, noting the light was not on. So this means what happened to the men likely happened in the afternoon slash evening of the 15th. This is important because it makes the reason the men would have been out even more peculiar. During December and being so far up north, the daylight hours were scarce Lighthouse keepers were under strict instructions that any work that needed to be done outside was done at first light in the morning. After lunch, there would have been about an hour and a half left of light, and the afternoon, therefore, would to carry out tasks inside the lighthouse, of which there were many, and for the first man on watch at night to get some sleep. Therefore, there was no reason for the men to have been outside at all. So why were they out there? Yeah, so this just adds to the massive list of questions that we have about what happened to them, I guess. Yeah. The official reports claim that the men were the unfortunate victims of bad weather, put in a situation similar to the example we have created before. However, even the report isn't all that it seems to be. To start with, there was never a fatal accident report. The fatal accident report, which was legally required for accidents and injuries at work, was introduced into law five years before this event. So why was one never carried out? And it turns out, even after the fact, the police were never informed about this. It was just the NLB that investigated and handled this themselves. 
Instead, NLB asked Robert Merhead to produce a report on what he believed several things were unusual about the way this report was carried out, though. Firstly, Merhead had started to write a report on the boat on the way to the island, meaning he was already formulating a story before he even arrived. When he did get there, he spent almost no time at all on the island, had a quick look and went home. When Merhead wrote the report, he took all documentation off the island, excluding the visitor's book. This is unusual because the logbook was taken, and this is a working document holding all the info that the island keepers would need. Subsequently, the only remaining documentation we have is the visitor's book, because all other documents mysteriously disappeared, never to be seen again. So ironically, I think this was one of Mayhead's biggest mistakes. I mean, the leaving the visitor's logbook. Uh, Any guesses why? Go on. Because the last person to visit the island and the last person to see these men alive was in fact Robert Mayhead. Ah, okay. Yeah, so in a strange and curious turn of events, Mayhead actually had stayed on the island only one week and one day before the men disappeared. Even stranger, he had brought his wife to stay with him. Right, okay. So, in bad weather conditions, and in Victorian fashion, what reason did Mayhead have to go to the island with his wife? And why would he not mention this in his report? This is an island where no one brought their families, no one had their families, all the family was on the mainland. So why did he do it? No one knows. So he completely distances himself from the event in his report. And the only reason that anyone could think he would visit the island is that he stayed there on the night of the 7th, which would have been the lighthouse's first anniversary. But it still doesn't really explain why he was there. So do you think he was having some sort of like romantic dinner with his missus on the island? Or just like him and her, I don't know, like in the lighthouse on the anniversary, in his weird twisted way, that might have been like a very... Well, you know, three other men. Yeah, well, like, you know. dog kennel. <laughs> <laughs> date night on a different level. Who knows? <laughs> Another thing we haven't mentioned is that Merhead himself handpicked these men to be the keepers of the lighthouse. So maybe he felt obliged to visit on the first anniversary. But if he felt indebted to the care of these men, why was the same care not shown in his report and care of the documentations? In another strange turn of events, Joseph Moore was also asked to write a report corroborating Merhead's. This was unusual at the time as Moore was a blue-collar worker and wasn't called upon to do this. However, there was a chain of command here and you would never have gone against what he was asked of him by the NLB. After these reports were published, no one officially ever looked into the case again. Okay, so it feels like the NLB were kind of washing their hands of this. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a little bit of a cover-up in some way. Maybe they felt that they left these guys with not enough means of safety, not enough means of protection, and felt like in some way they were responsible for this incident, um, or at the very least just wanted to keep it quiet um, for whatever reason, which is not unusual for any type of military outfit kind of organisations or, you know. No, but it does feel weird that they didn't do that fatal accident report. They didn't get the police involved. Um, In my mind, I guess, they didn't have the same meteorology reports that we have today. So maybe they just thought that that storm did hit on the 15th and that was all tidy and done. It just doesn't quite make sense to me. They definitely don't answer all of the questions that we have, such as, why was the third man out of the lighthouse? Why didn't he take his coat? Why did he lock all the doors behind him? Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And there definitely wasn't enough investigation taking place in order to try and figure out those answers no. to those questions. 
No, no. I mean, as you said, I think, you know, we he'd already started to write the report on the boat. So he'd already kind of made up his mind and then reported this back really quickly. It just seems very like he was told to tidy it up quick. Yeah, like a cover up. Okay, so let's move into some of the other theories of what could have possibly went down. Yeah, so one of the other theories, and actually my favourite theory, was to do with, uh, it boils down to one of the lighthouse keepers himself, and that was MacArthur. So he was a bit of a mystery himself. He valued his community and was dedicated to make it a better place. So this would have been on Lewis, where he lived with his family. Mm-hmm. He dedicated a load to the community, including building a local church for the residents. However, his own family reported that he could be very hot-headed and had a really bad temper. He was also a heavy drinker. And from what I gather from the research that I did, depended on drink to get him through a day. And were they allowed to drink on the island? I'm assuming No. So there was a strict no alcohol policy on the island. They were not allowed to take any alcohol onto the island. So he could have actually just been having withdrawal symptoms if he if he didn't have his alcohol as well. Yeah, or angry that, yeah, he couldn't get his next drink. And it's important to note here that he was an occasional lighthouse keeper, which meant he was never meant to be on the island for any significant amount of time. That's true. And, yeah, he would only be called on for short stints primarily when another lighthouse keeper was ill. So essentially he could have just got to the point of frustration and just what outright losing his mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he may have been told he would be on there for a few days while some guy's sick, but Ross ended up being on extended sick leave and MacArthur actually had been on the island for three months, which was an extended period of time he'd never thought he'd be there for. Yeah, and three months is a long time, especially to be away from your family in a building with two other guys in the middle of nowhere. When, yeah, when you're not expecting it, because um, I did read that the average posting for this job could be for like five, six years with the occasional two weeks leave. But this man was certainly never trained for that because he was only meant to be filling in. Yeah. And and it's it's noted as well that spending time on this island is it's like being compared to space travel. It's incredibly lonely and isolating and there's no communication back to the mainland. They use flags to communicate in these times. Um, even though the island was rarely seen from land anyway. But the men you are with are definitely colleagues. They're not friends. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. a rank as well. So, and you're working. And as we all know, you might not get on with your colleagues. To be allowed into space, you go through an intensive physical and, and psychological training to see if you can cope with the isolation. Even though for the most part, you do have contact with Earth, which is more than what these guys got from the mainland. Yeah, so it really goes to show how isolated these men actually were. They were in a really small space. They didn't necessarily get along with the people they they were with. I mean, this is perfect time to bring in, you know, lockdown. Seb, you and I live in London. There's lots of people who live with flatmates who can't afford their own houses, who have been locked down with those flatmates. They're not your friends. They are people that you live with. Mm-hmm. And it's a massive sense of isolation when he wasn't expecting to be away from his family. Yeah. And and as we've seen during, you know, the the lockdown and the quarantine that we've all been going through for the last six months, it's difficult. It is very difficult. Yeah. I mean, some people find it hard just being around their family, let yeah. alone, you know, people you work with. So 
you can understand the, the, the toll that this would take on your mental health. And at a time where obviously mental health was not even something people were discussing. So you could be quietly going crazy and no one would even really know. Yeah. So the theory here goes that MacArthur, who was not used to being on the island in isolation for so long, living in this small space called the Dog Kennel as a nickname, he's not had a drink in three months as alcohol is strictly prohibited. Um, He just snapped. It was just before Christmas. He may have been agitated. He was not with his family. We already know how important that was to him. He wouldn't have been able to go to the church he built. Um, He may have been feeling the pressure of being trapped inside during bad weather because they wouldn't have been outside. And as we said, we can all relate to that. I think it's important to note also the relief boat was going to be delayed by that point, which all of these things could have added to his frustration. So eventually the pressure's just building and building up in his mind and, and one day he just he just loses it. Yeah, yeah. So Mikowski actually paints a pretty reasonable scenario in his book, which I find quite interesting, where MacArthur, who was very stressed already, was asked by Ducat to carry out a piece of work outside. MacArthur refuses, so Ducat and Marshall go to carry out the task themselves. On their way out, maybe one of the men murmur at MacArthur, so after a while, deciding that he won't stand for it, flees the lighthouse in a rage, forgetting his coat to kind of have it out with the men. A fight may have broken out close to the edge. Marshall may have tried to intervene. We've already said that he was a big guy before. And then possibly the wind blew them over the cliff edge in their struggle. Yeah, I think that's that's a big arc, though. I think that's the part. <laughs> that it's the wind blowing them over, all three of them over the edge. I, I feel like I'm not saying all three of them couldn't have died in the same accident. We know that people dying in accidents on a daily basis for me it just feels implausible that all three of these types of guys would have perished in such a way um and i don't know that's the only part i can't get over i just think i I can believe two of them going outside and something happening or them getting into a fight but once the third one runs out there i believe you're running out there with a lot more caution so i don't know I, i i don't know if i can move past that point in my mind yeah, and I mean, I agree. To me, this answers a few, but not all of the questions. Uh, I can imagine tensions running really high, and I can imagine three men, especially like blue-collar, working tough men being in mm. close quarters. They're bound to have, you know, some fights and the occasional breakout. Mm. However, to me, it still doesn't explain why they were going out at that time of day due to the time of day and the weather. It also doesn't explain why the doors and gate were shut if MacArthur left in such a hurry and in such a rage that he would leave his coat behind. And quite frankly, as you've said, it seems pretty unlikely that all three would have ended up over a cliff. Yeah. I mean, that's for me, that's, that's the sticking point for me. And this wouldn't be the, the only incident like this. In, in 1960, the island of Little Ross off Kirkwood Bright, David Collin and his father went to a picnic on the island where they realised there were no sign of the lighthouse keepers. They later heard a phone ringing, so went to explore and found the body of Hugh Clark, who had been murdered by lighthouse keeper and colleague Robert Dixon with a shot to the chest. Okay, so this is really interesting then. So this kind of shows what someone's mental state can be if they're kind of in this job and in this isolation on a small island. Yeah, but why have no clothing or any of the bodies been found? Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. You'd think even with strong weather when you look at pictures of the flannels, it's basically just all rocks, isn't it? Yeah. 
So I would and, assume something would get caught up. Yeah, I mean, we saw with the ropes, as they documented, that yeah, the ropes that yeah. came out of crates, they were all still point. up against the um, side of the island. So it, you'd assume at least one of these three bodies would have been washed up against the side of the island, unless they were eaten by some form of life form in the water. Yeah, which is a theory, which I'm sure we'll get to, as we're going to start entering into our kind of more conspiratorial type answers that could have happened here. So one of these is that Murhead himself actually had something to do with the disappearance due to his visit on the 7th. This theory states that maybe an accident occurred while trying to help him and his wife and that the men were injured or indeed killed. According to this theory, Murhead would have then continued to have faked the logbook up until the 15th which would have covered him before leaving. So, so effectively, all three keepers were already dead. Yeah. What, he murdered them? No, the, the theory goes is that maybe because the weather was rough, they were trying to help him off the boat. Maybe they'd fallen over. Maybe they were trying to help him with the crates or the ropes. And kind of an accident happened that was ultimately down to himself, which is right. why he wanted to distance himself from the case in his report. Right. So he was kind of the cause of the accident yes. and decided he wanted to cover up and by doing so essentially faked the logs for the yes. next, what, seven days mm-hmm. before leaving. Okay, it's plausible, it's plausible. And then we start getting into some of the other theories, like, for example, the rogue wave, which was believed to be a myth at the time. However, there isn't much evidence to support this. The biggest wave ever recorded was 95 foot, and that's not tall enough to reach the island. Weather reports showed that the day was fairly calm, and even if there was a rogue wave, how did it take all three men at the same time? And even if it took two, and the third went to look, why were they out? What are the chances of second rogue wave taking him too? Why did he leave his coat as well? Yeah, and I think this doesn't explain a million things. So again, yeah, as you've said, it doesn't explain why they were even outside. doesn't explain why they were on the west side of the island when they weren't working there. doesn't explain why he had the time to lock all the doors and not take his coat. It just doesn't no. make sense. And the thing for me, the, the, this is a theory that I saw quite a lot online. Um, in fact, this is not just a theory for some people. This is This is the final conclusion for a lot yeah. of people that I saw. They said, oh, they just all got washed away. But again, I keep coming back to this point is this is what these guys did for a living every day. They must understand these conditions more more than anyone. And why would they shouldn't have been outside? Yeah, all three would not rule number one. Let's not forget rule number one. Someone (laughs) stays in the lighthouse at all times. The first rule about the flannan aisles. (laughs) Yeah, the first rule of flannan aisles is (laughs) you don't talk about flannan aisles. But (laughs) yeah, so that that can't that can't ever be um that can't be forgotten for me. That rule has to stay put. Yeah, so uh, I completely agree. I don't think it was a rogue wave. Another conspiracy theory was that the island actually had a bad reputation for many centuries before this event. No one had lived there permanently for over a thousand years since the time of St. Flannan and his Celtic flock. The island was supposedly the home to ancient pre-Christian burial grounds, leading many to believe the island was cursed. Supposedly, pagan rituals were carried out on Lewis and the surrounding islands, including human sacrifices, uh, actually similar to what you see in The Wicker Man, if you've seen that. Yes, brilliant film. Yes, which I think was 
based around the kind of culture that did genuinely exist on Lewis. Let me just rephrase that. The first Wicker Man with Edward Woodward is a brilliant film. The remake with <laughs> Nicolas Cage is complete rubbish. Don't waste your time. <laughs> yeah, so um, in this kind of culture, some believe that the building of the lighthouse disturbed that sanctity of the island and released curses and spirits. Oh, okay. Many encountered bad luck after they came into contact with the island. Moore, who was superstitious himself, had forgotten his lucky charm the day he found the abandoned island and was driven so mad by the events, the NLB had to let him go three months later. Yeah, I find it kind of sad that he actually did have to spend another three months on that island after what happened. Yeah, because, I mean, he was just sent up there to investigate, wasn't he? He was just yeah. there to have a look well, around. I think he was meant to replace, I one assume, the... MacArthur, actually. Right. Okay, so he was going there to replace one of the other keepers anyway. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of got landed with the uh, backlash of... But then all he's got to think about for those three months is what happened to those other three guys? Could you imagine just sitting there thinking the whole time, what happened to those (laughs) other three guys? My gosh, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. During the lighthouse's construction, which actually took two years longer to build than expected due to adverse weather conditions, one of the foremans died on the island shortly before the lighthouse opened. In 1904, four years after the disappearance of the men, John McLagan, who had been one of the men's replacements, was cleaning the glass casing of the light when he slipped and fell to his death. Yeah, so this really makes me think that there might be a crazy curse on the island. Or a crazy cover-up, one or two. They might, just, <laughs> they might just have a really bad health and safety act going on over there. Yeah, it is unusual and it does seem very unlucky mm. um, that all the, this kind of misfortune would happen around it. Now might be a good time to note when Joseph Moore actually boarded the island for the first time when he saw these men were missing. He couldn't find the men, but he did, however, see three huge black crows sat on top of the lighthouse. So a lot of these kind of pagan conspiracies think that the three men might have been turned into crows. Oh, my gosh. Really? (laughs) Okay, we're going there now. That's that's. that's well, it crazy. links us into our monsters and mysteries, which yeah, I mean, because there are there are some more crazy theories. We'll 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 kind of we'll get through some of these crazy theories now, and yeah. then get to our conclusions ourselves. Um, so some of the more far fetched theories suggest that they've been carried away by a giant seabird, or they've been abducted by spies, or simply escaped to start a new life. So let's go back to the giant seabird. <laughs> Because you can't just you can't just skip over that. So again, did this giant seabird take all three of them at the same time, or came swept around, took one, took the other, and then came back for the third? After you've been the third man and you've seen two of your colleagues get picked up by a giant <laughs> seabird, are you really going to stand there and try and fight this thing off, or run back inside the lighthouse for safety? So I think we can dismiss the giant seabird in one go. Um, sea monster is interesting because. In some ways, I'm not saying it's it's more plausible than the seabird because it really isn't. Mm-hmm. But you never know. They might have been in a situation where one had been caught by some sort of large animal in the ocean. We do know large animals in the ocean exist, so that's not a myth. So we do know there are animals in the, in the sea that are big. And if something happened to one of them, it may have took or they might have believed two other people could have helped this person to get out of this situation. Yeah. I, I 
trying to pull them away from this massive creature. I'm not saying it has to be a mythological creature like Nessie. It could just be something they've never seen before, um, like a giant squid with its tentacles around one of your arms, and it's trying to pull you into the sea. And if one grabs hold of the other one and tries to pull him, and then the other one in the lighthouse sees what's going on, he would just feel obliged to run outside the lighthouse and maybe help try and save his colleague. I don't know. Yeah, um, well, there was a monster reported, actually, who supposedly haunted the uh, Flannan Isles, but it actually turned out to be a basking shark. And for everyone who knows their kind of biology, basking sharks eat mainly krill and not people. Okay. <laughs> so. Okay. Um, they may have been abducted by spirits or otherworldly beings. UFOs have come into play in some <laughs> theories. Maybe aliens came down and... Um, abducted them and another theory is that one of the men just went crazy and murdered the other two and subsequently committed suicide by jumping into the ocean which is very plausible i, I, I yeah. i'm not writing that one off that that could happen like yeah i mean we've already seen it with the lighthouse that you mentioned earlier so yeah so i mean out of, out of all the crazy theories out there i do think that's probably the most um one that i'd probably lean towards Yes, I think um, I know that several lighthouse keepers over the next few decades reported hearing strange voices on the wind calling the names of the three missing men. I believe this could be attributed to the lively imaginations of the men on duty on a lonely and foreboding and uninhabited island, translating the haunting calls of the pestrels or the puffins into ghostly human voices, or a little bit of a case of mass hysteria, which we've spoken about in another podcast. Yes, if you want to know about mass hysteria, go listen to episode two. And also, we've had um, sailors and pirates and, and stuff talk about mermaids calling them on, yeah. on rocks before. So I'm I'm assuming that kind of probably relates to that in some way. I think it's safe to say I don't believe any of this happened. There was probably a more plausible reason that I don't think people have come across yet. I mean, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. <laughs> And Sherlock Holmes would always say something along the lines of, if you um, evaluate all of the evidence, no matter what the evidence points you towards, no matter how outrageous that conclusion is, that is the conclusion. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. don't I agree. think there's any conclusion that all the evidence points towards. No, there isn't. But out of all those ones on the list, I would say one killing the other two is probably the most believable, just because it's it can happen. And that's not unbelievable. But some questions that we're left with, though, is why the bodies were never found? That one sticks out for me. Yeah. And and why would MacArthur, if it was MacArthur who was the last one in there, why would he go out there so unprepared if he knew they were in proper danger? Mm -hmm. um, wouldn't he have been more cautious before approaching whatever it was that had put them in danger? Mm. Unless, unless it, I mean... I can't assume that it was just wind and water. I, I think there has to be some other presence there. Because I believe that he would know that him running out into a storm puts his life completely in danger at that point. And he's fighting against the elements that he can't win. I mean, he mm -hmm. would know that from being in this, you know, I'm assuming if you're in Lighthouse and literally the, the waves are smashing against the side of this island constantly, you would know just by looking out there, you're not going to survive that. So, I don't know. I can't buy that you would just run out there to try and somehow feel like you're going to save somebody. 
I don't know. I don't know. But maybe he did. You don't know. You don't know what kind of people these were and you don't know how close. I mean, we're assuming just because they're colleagues, but also people that are in confined spaces with one another tend to build relationships and bonds with each other and trust. And who knows, they might class themselves as brothers. We we mm. might look at them as colleagues, but they might have, have got to a point where they saw each other as family and may have acted in the same way you would if one of your siblings were caught out in the same situation. So it's not completely implausible that, that they would run out there into blind danger. Um, but you'd feel that they were trained enough not to do so in the manner that they probably did. Because also, if you had the mindset to lock up before you left, mm. that that also sticks out, is that you obviously were in some frame of mind because you didn't just run out there like a crazy person. You locked the doors first, but didn't take a coat. So, Although I do have a tiny bit of a theory here, which may help. Okay. I know that leaving all my doors open and there's a slight breeze, everything will slam shut. And I have seen conflicting reports that the outside door was locked. So if the outside door was locked, my theory goes out the window. <laughs> but if it wasn't, it could have been the bad weather that shut all the doors. That's, you know what? That's 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 probably the most obvious answer. I didn't even think <laughs> of that. That is clearly the reason why the doors were shut. There's, there's no other reason, is there? I mean, everyone knows that. If you've got a gust of wind and the door's open, it's likely to slam shut. So... Yeah, just forget everything I just said about that, <laughs> because that is clearly the answer. Yeah, well done, Zoe. Um, <laughs> so what do you think happened? What's your conclusion? What are you leaning towards? Okay, if I had to put money on it today, I'm torn between a freak accident happening outside, which made the one inside feel that he could help in some way. And by standing there watching while either one or two of your colleagues well, brothers at this point perished, would have been too hard for him to do. So he mm. felt the need to go and try and save or try and... But try then why and, were they out there? That I don't know. I don't <laughs> know why they were out there. But they could have been out there because they saw some of their equipment being blown around. And, you know, going back to what we said earlier... They suffered a fine. Yeah, one of them had suffered a fine for allowing that to happen in the past. Um, and maybe thought, you know what, we need to go and get that equipment no matter what. Mm. Um, it's been blown around the island and got himself into a bit of trouble the other one went out there to help him the third one's watching from the watchtower and sees that these two are not going to be able to um, get themselves out of this mm. and runs down there to help and before you know it they're all in danger and somehow swept away but the whole giant wave thing that just sweeps them all up in one go and throws them out, I kind of find that hard to believe but and then the other theory that I lean towards is is the one we just discussed, where one of them killed the other two. Because mm-hmm. I just think, you know, I, I watch enough true crime and listen to enough true crime podcasts to understand that that is very real. And if you have got to a point where your mental health has deteriorated that much and um, you maybe have had an argument with one of the other ones, who knows? I, but I, I, it's not to me that that theory is completely, completely plausible, and there's nothing wrong with that. And he could have easily committed suicide um, straight afterward, and and all the evidence is, is just washed away at sea. So, yeah, I'm sticking with those two. Yeah, I have to say, I think I agree with you. I think in my head, 
the most obvious thing probably would have been something similar to what Mikowski said, where there was some altercation that went on. There was a fight that had broken out. Maybe a fight broke out too close to the cliff. Maybe there was some weather included in that, which, you know, blew them over or swept them off. Or, yeah, I'm kind of tend to agree with you. If, if MacArthur was hot-headed or he was, you know, fierce as his family described him and he wasn't expected to be on the island for that long and he was suffering from all this isolation, I think it's perfectly plausible that he did snap. Yeah. Again, it doesn't... It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain why there was no wreckage. It doesn't explain why there was no body found. It doesn't explain, you know, if the doors were shut by himself and not the weather. There are a few things it doesn't explain. I don't think there is an explanation that we can find that kind of answers all our questions. No. And if it did, then it wouldn't be a mystery. So, you know, I think that's that's probably as as good a conclusion as I can give to it. and, and, And you can as well. But yeah, have you got anything else to say on the matter? No, no, I think we've covered it all. I think we have. And yeah, I think we've looked at every every bit of research that I could come across anyway on this subject. And hopefully we've been able to deliver this to our listeners in a way that's digestible and not too boring, hopefully. Hopefully we've tried to keep it entertaining and tried to keep keep to the facts and giving you our opinions and our ideas along the way. Yeah, um, I think it's important to know. I I can't remember the film, Seb. You're going to have to help me. Neither Seb nor myself have seen it, but there was a it's film called released the last year. The Lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, it's called The Lighthouse, and um, it covers this um, whole entire story. I haven't watched it yet, but I am going to watch it now. I try not to watch things that are going to influence my um, yeah, me too. My mind on on whatever we're going to discuss. I'd rather work off the research that's already out there that's more factually based and entertainment based. Um, but I will watch it now. Um, but I heard it's a, it's a good watch. And so I'm, I'm going to try and check it out. Maybe we can discuss it on another, another episode or do a review on the actual film itself. If that's something that our listeners would enjoy, please let us know. Mm-hmm. And if there are any other topics, as we always say that you'd like us to discuss on the show, let us know and we'll, try and uh, add it to the list and do our best to research that subject and and bring it to our listeners. Just before we go as well, I thought it'd be a good idea to try and give listeners a clue for the um, next episode. I think Zoe thinks I'm a bit crazy for trying this. (laughs) Um, But I thought it'd be a fun little thing for our listeners to try and do. So I'm going to try and give a clue to what we might be discussing. And the clue is the mother of all pyramid schemes. That's it. The mother of all pyramid schemes. Anyone that can try and uh, give us an answer for that on our social media pages um, would be appreciated. And we'll give you a shout out in the next episode if you get it correct. If listeners want to get in touch with us, there are many ways to do that. Zoe, do you want to tell them how? Yeah, uh, you can contact us on Facebook at The Curious Cat Podcast. Twitter at Curious Cat Pod and Instagram at Curious Cat Pod. So that's C-U-R-I-O-U-S Cat Pod. Yes, and we will be having a uh, a website up pretty shortly, hopefully within the next week or so. And that would mean that all of these things will be in one place. Uh, so you will no longer need to individually go to 
either Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can find everything all in one place. All our references for all the shows, all our episodes for all the shows. Uh, we'll have discussion forums as well, articles that myself and Zoe have wrote that are not discussed on the show as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully it'll be a nice platform for all of us to meet and keep discussing the type of subjects that we like talking about here on the show. So yeah. So with that, I think that's the end of the episode. So I just want to say thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening, guys. Until next time, stay curious.